is a business and a brand. Coming on the hair scene in 2005, Nija is the owner and master stylist at Like the River Salon in Atlanta. She is the winner of the 2017 Small Business Excellence Award for Excellence in Longevity. Nija has been featured as a game changer by Modern Salon Magazine. Like the River Salon has been featured in Elle Magazine as a top 100 salon in America and also in Best of Atlanta for hair and beauty. Nija is the founder of Beauty Beyond the Hair, a quarterly workshop that teaches stylists technical skills and business practices to advance their career. She is considered one of the industry's prolific educators and instructors in the U.S. and internationally. Nija has a loyal base of clients, followers, and fans who span from California to New York. She is my friend and also my stylist. Nija, welcome to These Three Things podcast. <laughs> what about that you. intro, Nija? What'd you I think about? love it. it I intro. love it. I was like, wow, did I do all those things? <laughs> <laughs> you have. You have probably too much to name, really, if we think about it. Like, I probably couldn't have listed all of the things that you've done yeah just been a lot um within just 15 years um really coming on the scene yeah and in 15 years like relevant as if you just came on the scene five years ago yeah I still feel like the new kid on the block every time yeah every time yeah so I always like to give our listeners a preview of how I know the people that I podcast, like how we met. Mm-hmm. Cause I, for me, I always like to understand the dynamics of how do people know each other? Like how do they become, you yeah. know, and obviously you're a stylist, so you've met a lot of women, but I think our story is a little funny because do you remember how we met? Somebody referred you to the slide. I know. No. Okay. This is going to make you laugh. Okay. Um, about three years ago, you were on IG at six o'clock in the morning in the salon. And you said, you know what? I'm going to start taking new clients today. Let me pick up the phone. I and I picked up that. the phone and I called and you. And you called while I was still And li- you were live. talking to me on live. And I was like, so I've tried to get an appointment with you for two years. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's happened a lot. Yeah. A lot of my live, um, I've gotten assistance from, you know, being on live, like people come down and want to work for the salon, clients, it's so funny. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, I've come from the sports world, and at my last job, our every game was on television. I got more emails about my hair and who cuts my hair and where wow. do I go to get my hair done than anything. Whenever we were on television, I could at least expect anywhere from five to seven emails the next day, That's who cuts your hair, who is your stylist? Wow. So I've given your name to plenty of women over the years who just, you know, That's love incredible. you. Love That's you and incredible. love your skills. White and black, Nija. Yeah. White and I black. Get a lot of, I get a lot of Caucasian, like my clients tell me that a lot of uh, white people are like, oh, my God, I love your haircut. Yeah. 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 Okay. So where are you from? I am from New York, born in Long Island, New York. Um, but we moved at a very young age, like 
um, I must have been about five or six. Mm-hmm. Um, our first move was to St. Louis. I never, I never, I always skipped the St. Louis part, <laughs> the show me state. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not from there. But, but I, we were there for like a brief period and then we went, moved to Chicago. So okay. Chicago's like five hours away, uh, driving. Mm-hmm. Um, so we moved, it was like maybe a few years that we stayed in St. Louis, but then Chicago's where I was raised and went to high school. Okay. Um, really just established myself working in the working world and all that. Okay. Okay. So you claim Chicago really is home. Oh yeah. 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 Chicago's home. So family life, like, did you come from a large family? Oh my God. Yes. Um, my mom and dad had seven girls. Ooh. I'm daughter number five. Middle. We lost two, two of my older sisters. Okay. And um, yeah, but we, uh, all women, my father, and he raised us like men. Mm-hmm. We grew up Muslim. So he thought we were the, what they call fruit of Islam. Mm-hmm. Those are the men, yeah. you know, and I think my father thought all seven of us were men. Yeah. <laughs> the training <laughs> that he's given us and how he had us moving around was like we were little soldiers. Yeah, do you credit him for your work ethic? Probably, most yeah. likely, yeah. most likely, because mm-hmm. some of my sisters are like, you're just like your dad, just mm-hmm. so you just won't stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's worked for you, though. Yeah, it has. It's worked for you. Yeah. So as a young girl, who was young Naja? Was Naja a tomboy? Naja, excuse me. Was Naja a tomboy? Was she a girly girl? No, I was very inquisitive. I think I was always sitting and wondering um, the how, the Mm -hmm. why, or I can do this. Mm -hmm. Um, I was very strong. I used to like um, be the teacher with my two younger sisters. I have two sisters that are younger than me, but I was always like, I'm going to show y'all how to do this. I'm going to be the teacher. You guys got to listen to me. I was the the horse, and they were on my back. So I was like carrying. Them, <laughs> carrying so you them. were the teacher from the beginning. Yeah, I, yeah. I've always the educator. been a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So big family, seven girls. Mm-hmm. How did you move to Atlanta? How did Atlanta become home? Um, my mom was the first to move from Atlanta, uh, Chicago. Uh, she actually came to visit one of her good best friends here. And she came and stayed for like two weeks, and then she came back home to Chicago and was like, I'm moving to Atlanta. We were like, what? (laughs) And by this time, I think her and my father, they weren't really together, but they were just kind of like back and forth. He was traveling with the Nation of Islam and just always on the road, and my mother was over Chicago. So she decided to move in 94, Mm -hmm. and then I was working in corporate America at the time, doing insurance and going to school, trying to take some college courses. Mm-hmm. And um, I did. I was married at the time. Um, and then I got a divorce. It only lasted three years. And, you know, I just wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. And I always say when you can't, when you're not ready with yourself, mm-hmm. there's no way that you can give yourself to others yeah. in anything. So I wasn't ready. I was very young um, in my 20s and getting married and all that. So then when I moved to Atlanta, it was just like, Divorce, my mother had moved, and you're going to start a whole new life in Atlanta. Yeah. Because there was nothing. I mean, I was just bored with my job, and, you know, there was, wasn't really anything there for me. I was just still trying to figure out and navigate my whole life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at what point through those years did hair become your calling, that you knew this is what I'm, I'm doing? I think um, it's been since I was, like, seven years old, actually. My, I used to re- remember my grandmother always saying, oh, your hands, you're going to do something with your hands. I used to massage her scalp, oil it, braid it, Mm -hmm. and and brush it. And she used to always talk about my hands. And then, so years later, I got, I started taking piano lessons. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So my parents put me in piano lessons. and, um, And then when I moved to Atlanta in 95, I keep a journal. My dad taught, taught us about like keeping a journal mm-hmm. um, and writing your thoughts and what you want to do. Talk about the events of the day and what, how are you going to just write everything down. Everything that's on your mind, write it down. Yeah. So I started this imagination of me doing hair because I was always doing hair back. And I'm going to go back just a little bit. When we were in St. Louis for that short 
brief time. We went to, lived in an all-white neighborhood, went to an elementary school. There was a girl named Patty Moses that I used to go to her. She was blonde, blue-eyed girl, mm. long hair. Okay. But I was obsessed with her hair. I like, yeah. wanted her kind of hair. Yeah. I think I must have been about uh, 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted her hair. So I used to go to her house every day and do her hair, like braid it, curl it, do something. And so one day her mom called my mom and she was like, I don't know what Nigel's obsession is with his hair, but she's down here with Patty every day after school, <laughs> braiding, curling. And one day she asked me for scissors. I said, no, you can't have scissors. <laughs> so I think it's, it's been a while. It's been a long time. Mm-hmm. But in my journal that I kept, it was always talking about beauty and hair mm-hmm. and uh, making women look good and all the things that I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So I worked in retail a lot in Chicago. So I got into that whole fashion and retail therapy that I was really in. And then the beauty thing just came from there. Um, people used to always ask me when I moved to, are you a model? Are you? Mm-hmm. Do you do hair? You look like a hairstylist. So then I, I didn't go to school till I came to Atlanta which was in 96 or 7. I came here in 95. I decided to go to school in like 96 or 97. Mm -hmm. And I went to an all-black cosmetology school on um, Metropolitan. I don't know why I chose that school, but I did. (laughs) And it was like, you know. Not it. It was not it, but it was a lot of young people Mm -hmm. in there. By this time, I'm I'm in my 30s. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. these kids, but I have to stay focused. Mm-hmm. They were so much younger than me, but yeah. then they would all look at me like, who is this woman in right. here? Like, she does not fit in yeah. this environment. But I kept, I stayed to it, got my license, and then um, finally took off from there. Right. But I didn't tell anybody that I was pursuing this mm-hmm. cosmetology career because for me, it wasn't professional. They didn't make money. Uh, it was like mm. one of those dropout situations, yeah. last resort of, so I didn't want to tell anybody, even the guy that I was dating at the time, he's a writer. He was working for Atlanta journal constitution. I didn't even tell him that I was going to school at night. So describe that, describe like, okay, so I have this corporate job. It's going well for me, but I, my passion is somewhere else. And at this season of my life, I'm just going to pivot. Yeah. And do something different. Were you met with like, Nigel, what are you doing? Did you have, um, did you second guess yourself or did you just leap and just go? I don't go? think that I was met with a lot of that, but I'm sure people had their brows up like, really, you're going to quit a job to go do that? Mm-hmm. But the thing about me, and I think, I don't know, maybe it was instilled, I don't really care what people think. Yeah. You know, I don't make my decisions based on somebody's thought of me because yeah. they don't even know me. Right. So when you talk about me or you say things, you don't you don't know you don't know my my spirit, my heart. You don't know you don't know me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't I never make decisions based on the thoughts of others. So, but it was hard because I I had a little fear like if I quit this job, I'm not going to have any insurance benefits, no more 401k, no Definitely no to no biweekly check mm-hmm. coming in consistently. Mm-hmm. So you go out here, you got to hope that. People want to come to you to get their hair done, to get paid. Right. You got to hope that that you're that good. And I just, I didn't know that I was good, Mm -hmm. honestly. I just knew how I felt about what I did. Yeah. So I loved what I did. Yeah. Okay, so you make the decision. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do this. You enroll. You get started. So do you have a vision of what this is going to look like for you? Uh, Like, I'm going to own my own salon. Like, this is the goal. Yeah, I wrote it all in my journal. I literally wrote it in my journal. Um, I I said, one day I'm going to own a really big salon, and then I'm going to be very popular, and (laughs) I'm going to be this hair cutter. And and I wrote that in my journal. So I I knew that that's where I wanted to go. I was like, this is where... I want to be, and but I kept writing about it because mm-hmm. my dad said, always write down your goals and your dreams. Yes. And so when I kept doing that, and I, every time I went back to my book, I'm like, wow, this is what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Um, but I knew um, that I wanted to do it. 
Okay. So now you're doing it. Okay. A little bit, a little of advice for these young ladies out here. What is the first skill a young stylist needs to learn? Mm, professionalism. Mm, number speak one. Speak on it. Number one, it doesn't matter that you can cut or color hair. If you don't have any uh, business or professional experience, you your business will just be depleted. Mm-hmm. No one will want to come to you. They'll come to you th- for that first time. They'll be like a one-hit wonder. Right. Oh, great. Oh, I got my hair done. But girl, don't go to her because she is awful. You'll be in there 15 hours. Yeah. So the first thing they need to know is getting some business classes underway, being around, you know, expand your surroundings mm-hmm. of people. You can't be the smartest one in your group. Right. Of all your friends. You got to be around people that are doing something different or some, some people that you aspire to be like. Um, I think that is really important. You need to read so that you can put your words together and make sense. Yeah. You know, you just, if you haven't had any e- formal education, you need to know how to speak well and how to articulate. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be critical to your business as a new um, profession, mm-hmm. for real. Yeah. And you you attract who you are. Um, my clientele are professional well-spoken, well-driven women um, who are in high places. So I, you know, I have a standard and I think I attract that to, you know, Mm -hmm. to me. So those are my clients. So if you're like the girl that's a dime short, a day late, no products, you know, always got drama and things going on in your life. And I understand I don't have children, so I do understand women with children and that kind of thing, but right. there's just got to be, I call it like, put your fires out. You can't have that many right. fires happening. On a daily basis. On a daily yeah. basis. If you're if you have too much of that, then you won't get opportunities for bigger roles and positions. I hear perfectionist in you. Is that you? Are you a perfectionist? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty critical <laughs> with my work. I'll be looking at it after I finish a haircut. I'll be like, mm, and I'll take pictures. Yeah, I'm pretty, I don't know how to say a full perfectionist, but I like to get it right. Yeah. I like to review it again. What could you have yeah. done different to make this better? Yeah. So would you say that you're a perfectionist about your skill, but in other things in life, it doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah, exactly. Okay. About my skill. And I think too, because that is my income. That's my bread mm. and butter. I didn't think about it before like that because I just loved it. But yeah. as I get older, mm-hmm. I know that I have to get better. So how long were you a stylist before you became a salon owner? Only three years. I assisted um, a real popular salon in Atlanta. I assisted the owner um, probably two and a half years. And then on the third year, I was opening my own business. Yeah on three years into just being in this environment Mm -hmm. because I knew I worked at Van Michael Salon, which is a all white million dollar salon Mm -hmm. in Buckhead. And they, um, that was like the first place that I worked, Mm -hmm. you know, since like getting into the hair world. And I was like, I want a salon like this. Yeah. We need to have more salons like this in our community. Yeah. Let's talk about that, the evolution of the black salon. Do you feel that we've elevated over the years, that more salon owners are elevating their style and elevating the look of their salon and the professionalism of their salon? I feel, yeah, I feel like they have. I know particularly I've been teaching for the last 10 years Mm -hmm. on, on my Beauty Beyond the Hair brand, which just elevates the industry to excellence. So, and I've taught so many stylists mm-hmm. over the years, thousands of stylists that come to my boot camp. So short hair, mm-hmm. that's, is that your thing? Would you say that's your thing? Did, did you choose short hair or did short hair choose you? I think short hair chose me because I always wore my hair short. So then that's all everybody that would stop me had short hair Mm -hmm. and it's like and even now it's like the radar goes up somebody sees (laughs) I see it or they see me and it's like oh my god you know people recognize me from Instagram so they're like oh I know you you know it's like the radar goes off when you see a woman with short hair it's (laughs) (laughs) it's like yeah 
just from a, a success standpoint, how important is social media to build a stylist brand? Oh, my God. It's, that's where everybody is. Mm-hmm. Business owners, clients, all your business is in social media. So if you don't have a presence there, then you are missing out on a major opportunity of business, clients, you know, getting people to see you and recognize you. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about social media, you have to be consistent. You need to post every day. Yeah. Like, um, I think it's really important to building, you know, your brand. And that's how we started with just a picture. Yeah. Just one picture and that people were like, oh. And then the fact that it was a diff- it was very different, mm-hmm. the work was different, um, it drew attraction to a lot of people. They were like, interested. Right. You know, and then the person behind it, me being a professional, having corporate mm-hmm. skills and background and being able to to bring people in. I think I'm a very a big people person too. Oh, I have yeah. a you know, fun spirit and I like to have fun, of course. And but I think um, mm-hmm. all of that energy and that who I am c- kind of resonates through my yes. my social media yes. platform. One of the favorite things I love about Like the River Salon is the energy. Mm-hmm. When you go into LTR, it's for me, and I've moved around a lot because of my career. Mm-hmm. I've been to a lot of salons across this United States of America. Mm-hmm. Like the River is just different. There's an energy when you come in that um, all the women in there are, it seems to be like lovers of women. Like we can talk about fashion. It's just mm-hmm. its just an environment where you, we don't even know each other, but mm-hmm. by the time we leave it, or we've sat beside each other in the dryer or we've sat beside each other in the shampoo room, we feel like we know each other. We've yes. talked about books. We've, yes. I've, I've learned people I should be following on Instagram and your salon. Right, right. You know, everybody just feels like it just feels like a sisterhood. And, you know, you bring a little of that Chicago upbeat house music. Mm-hmm. So that keeps the energy and everybody, you know, going. And like, who's responsible for keeping the tone in the salon daily? Is that the owner or is that everybody? It's really the owner. It starts with the owner. Yeah. And then everybody that you bring on board, they need to understand that, that this is a, a different culture from what most stylists are, are used to. But it definitely comes from me. Um, the owner is responsible to ha- set the tone of that. Mm-hmm. It was just a certain mood that I want, wanted. I wanted people to come in here and feel a certain way. So mm-hmm. everything was about lighting and colors and uh, the waterfall, which is, plays a very calming effect. Yes. Um, and of course, it's like the river. So right. you have to have a water element there. And uh, the music is critical. But yeah, I think it definitely comes, comes from, from the top. From the top. So with that being said, how do you how do you vet your stylist? How do you choose? Okay, you're right for like the River Salon. They mm-hmm. have to love this in- industry just like me. You have to come just like me. I love it. I will eat, sleep, and breathe mm-hmm. uh, hair. Um, the industry studying it, and those people. I, I seek those people. Mm-hmm. Like what. When's your last classes? When's the last classes you've taken? Yeah. Well, it's been a few years. Well, I know you probably not for like the river. You know, it's a, it's a person that constantly lives Evolving, in this world. They live learning. in this world. Yep. If you okay. Will. So I always have this question when I see someone that's talented in something. I always wonder: Is their skill learned or is it natural? And do you do you feel that? Being a stylist and a really successful one That's a is good more about you just, it's just naturally in you. Like, you just have to show me a little bit here or there, but I know how to go and I have my vision of what I want that to look like. Or do you feel that that's taught? It's natural. I yeah. think the best, it's all natural. Because some things you can't teach. Like, people will watch me and watch me and, like, how did you do that? And yeah. I can't tell you exactly yeah it's a natural gift that you have I Um, tend to agree with that as a basketball coach I felt that there were some kids that I would go sit and watch and you just know like it's in you like you are a natural basketball player like right anything that you're going to be taught is only just going to enhance what you already have right right and some players can be made I have thought that some and I have seen that some players can be made with a lot of work but they still don't do what they do as easily and mm-hmm. as effortlessly mm-hmm. as the natural player. Exactly. Yeah. I've had style. That's a really good point. I've had stylists that, um, you know, they want to do hair so bad. They want to do it. They, but I don't know that they're 
goals are really there. Maybe they want to do it bad because of the really bad because of the money, but the skill level is not there, and yeah. it and it takes them longer. And it's a rough road when you just don't have that natural talent and you're really trying to teach yourself because, you know, hair is artistry. Mm -hmm. It's art. And it's like you've got to know how to work that art. Yes. So let's talk about what what are some of the common historic standards that should no longer exist in the black salon? Oh, God. Do we have time on this podcast? What should not exist anymore? Wow. And I'm saying this because I want you to educate the young, the young. Like, cause there's a lot of young uh, ladies I've seen that are opening salons in their 20s, which I'm I support that. I'm for any woman that's looking to you know venture out and do her own thing. But you know, educate them, mm-hmm. Nyjah, on like what standards, what things that- we should not. First of all, um, respecting people's time. That means you respect your time, and then you need to also respect your client's time. So that whole waiting and jumbling clients in. And right now with corona, this I've been talking about this for years. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy that some of us now, we can't, we can't be juggling, you know, 20 people in the salon at a time. Right. Just more professionalism. You know, more greeting people, getting them out on a, in a timely fashion. You know, not eating in the salons. Make this a place of like sanctuary for people to go get their hair done. Where they spa-ish. can spa-ish, spa-ish, mm-hmm. exactly. The biggest thing is just uh, time management, um, better systems to get you know to greet people, to talk to people. Um, just a whole different system. You know, you get mm-hmm. you get software to help you if you're not that person get people to help you if you yeah. you know if you're the, the the boss and the head boss and you got all the clients you need assistance or uh, an operation manager salon manager somebody to help you and we don't really have those systems in place because right. we don't want to pay anybody right or we're control freaks and we don't want we don't trust anybody we don't trust anybody mm-hmm. exactly yeah yeah Okay, you're listening to These Three Things with Nyjah Aziz. We'll be right back. If you want to find more information about this episode and my guest, go to www.these3-things.com. Go to our podcast page and click on this episode. Hey, this is Sharana, and we are back with These Three Things and Miss Nyjah Aziz. So, Nyjah, mm-hmm. it's March. We're all preparing for spring. Mm-hmm. The weather's gotten a little warmer than we're used to getting early in March. And then COVID-19 sends us all home in quarantine for two months. What did you do? Well, well, first of all, I was like, is this really happening? Like, what are we going to do? And I'm a, I'm a go on-the-go person. So I'm always spinning my wheels, always like trying to figure out what's next. Um, hard for me to sit at home. I've never been in my house this long where I had to rediscover my whole home existence. But um, at that point, you know, everything is shut down. You, you don't have supplies. You don't have, um, you know, how are your clients going to survive? I started thinking about clients. So I went into a just thinking about what they would need, what their needs are. And I think that's, that was critical at that point in time. So I came up with a quarantine premium survival hair kit. And that's exactly what I called it. (laughs) We needed it. The survival hair kit. And I started making these kits and I was ordering everything. So in the kits were shampoo, conditioner, everybody needs going to, because you can't get, you don't have access to this stuff. We didn't right. even know. Shampoo, conditioner, um, a silk pillowcase to sleep on. Um, Very important. Our D oil, aka Medina oil. Love it. Um, and what else? Foam strips and a comb. Everything that you needed to Everything. keep your hair together while, and it came into this cute mesh mesh bag that we put together. And literally, my my house became a shipping headquarter. This could have been like Amazon <laughs> shipping center distribution. And I had boxes, as you can see, like some of these things oh, yeah. I was lined up. I've had I had like 
um, just people that I could still connect with, some of our uh, distributors, mm-hmm. they were delivering to my house during the quarantine, and they were, like, amazed that this place, this whole dining room was, like, filled with boxes and shipping products, and yeah. we literally sent out over 400 kits. Wow. So were you shocked at that response? Yeah, I was. I was, I mean, every time the phone would go off, I would get a notification. About, <laughs> I was like, oh my God. And then I would, then I got up and got set goals every day. I was like, okay, we're going to sell 20 kits today. Oh, wow. And literally we probably went like 25, wow. 27 kits. Wow. And they were selling every single day. People were desperate. People were scared. Mm-hmm. People were nervous. They didn't know what, oh my God, what am I going to do with my hair? Yeah. Not knowing that you're really not going anywhere, but you still needed something at home yes. to keep it up. So then I started doing tutorials live, showing them how to mold their hair, yes. showing them how to curl their Which hair, I loved. showing them that don't color your hair while you're in quarantine, just let the grays go. I mean, it was like a whole production in here where I even had to call the team over, my salon team, to come help pack uh, kits yeah. so we can mail out. Do you do you consider yourself a servant leader? I think so, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what does that smile mean? I don't know. Just, <laughs> you like that. I right? didn't know. I didn't know. You know, you just do things that are natural. So I didn't really realize that that's what I was doing. But then I became, you know, interviewing, you know, what I know that we're very resourceful people. And I know that we could do all things. And, you know, sometimes you don't think you can, but Mm -hmm. when you faced with certain, you know, uncertainty, Mm -hmm. you're going to come out the box like, whoa, I never knew that. Right. We did so many things during quarantine. My, my account, my social media was so active and I was, it felt like my responsibility to go on and entertain people. I was doing quarantine cocktails mm-hmm. and showing them how to make loved and cooking. It. it was turned, I had a cooking show going on. I loved it. I had everything going on. And that's servant leadership because, you know, a lot of people just shut down and went home and we're all worried about ourselves and what the future holds for me. And am I going to have a job? And yeah. everybody's thinking about me, me, me. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking about, okay, well, how are these women going to maintain their hair and keep their hair healthy mm-hmm. until they can get back to the salon and yeah. staying educated? That's part of uh, the engagement, you know, with your with your clients and with your brand and your business. You've got to keep everybody engaged. And I yeah. felt like it was my responsibility to stay engaged just because we're closed. We're still here. You know, we'll, we'll be here. And that's, that leads us to when we, we open, you know, why we have 260 people on a waiting list to come in. And then let's talk about the other side of that. So now we've started to open back up in Georgia mm-hmm. and, um, the Today Show. Oh yeah. Wants I'm, to I'm talk to Nyjah about. Yeah. About what your processes are. Um, and it's like, that was, that was amazing. It was just like a connection. Somebody who knew someone called me, they DM me and said, hey, I have a friend that works for, she's a producer. Mm-hmm. They are looking to interview an African-American salon. I thought about you. Do you want to do it? I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. And then at one point I didn't think it was going to happen because, you know, television mm-hmm. stuff gets pushed and everything that was going on mm-hmm. with quarantine and Corona and everything. Um, so then we finally, they finally aired it. And that was just like a nice national hit all during, all during quarantine. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about across the aisle Mm -hmm. with our white sisters in Mm -hmm. the hair and beauty industry. Why do you think that in 2020, the salon experience hasn't moved to a more inclusive environment? Why are we still mostly segregated? Um... I still think um, there's a, a level of trust and uh, that we're, you know, African-Americans are not educated enough to, to do their hair or it's really trust and how they feel comfortable. We can feel comfortable going into their spaces, but they don't feel comfortable coming into our space. And I think, you know, during cosmetology, you know, we learn on Caucasian. They don't give us African-American mannequins to work on. They give us their mm-hmm. hair to work on. Yeah. And so we're, we're most equipped and knowledgeable of how to deal with their hair. But there's that, there's that thing that's happening in this country right now, mm-hmm. you know, not, not trusting or we're not educated enough or we're, you know, 
they're the superior. And you know what I mean? I do. So we, we still deal with that in the hair industry. Um, I worked, um, I opened my salon in 2008 on Highland Avenue in Inman Park. And we were over there for nine years. And that's a predominantly Caucasian neighborhood. Right. You know, mm-hmm. the upscale, the nice. Right. Um, and they would not come into that salon. We had about a couple people from the neighborhood that would come in and get a haircut. Mm-hmm. And mainly like guys. Yeah. Women, no, they would not come in there. And then the outside looked so great that they would come in and peek in like, oh, can I get some information? But then they would look around. Right. So it was full of African-American. And they were like, okay, thanks. But I don't know what that stigma is. I think, um, you know, is that, I mean, this is years and years mm-hmm. of conditioning of what we're seeing today. Right. So um, just not trusting us or feeling like we're not, you know, we can't do what their counterparts can do, you know, which is so far from the truth. So just in interest alone, and this is this show is a show about women of color. So if we don't talk about the men, if there's any men listening, we're not excluding you guys, but it is a women of color podcast. Right. So <laughs> uh, I'm going to mention the ladies. Do you think that white stylists want to learn how to do black hair or are even interested in? Now they do. I'm finding an uptick surge. I actually just did a uh, StreamYard um, cast yesterday. We I did a haircut, and I was on this live with a lot of people, um, and I know that a lot of them was Caucasians, mm-hmm. um, just wanting to learn textured hair. It was called the tech. It was called textured hair elevated. Okay. Um, and so they're wanting to know more about how to do our hair. I think with everything that's going on, you know, I think it's uh, it, it might be a pivot. There might be a small change. And um, why do you think that is? My first thought when you said it honestly was money. That might be a lot of it because they know we spend so much billions of dollars in this industry. Right. Um, I think, you know... Because of, of uncertainty now, you know, some clients may not want to come. They better put something else under their belt. I better learn how to do some textured hair. I know they're going to get their hair done. We're going to get our hair done. Right. Um, where, you know, our like our Caucasian women, they may go eight to ten weeks without, you know, get needing a, another haircut. Right. And or we're color. we're or color, and we we are weekly people. You know, we got our relaxers, we have our short hair, we have whatever our weaves, whatever we have, it requires some some more attention. Yes. And so, um, it is that would be the money part of it because of the times that we're living in. Um, but I really don't. I think it's just that um, privilege. The the privileged part of it where they don't feel like we're comp, you know, we don't have that skill level to take care of them. And I don't. But wouldn't you say that black women, black stylists are more comfortable doing white hair than the other way around? Oh yeah. We're totally, yeah. Because like I said, that's what we learned. You're on. Trained on. We're yeah. trained on their hair. They don't, they don't, they don't, no one's given them a, a textured mannequin to work on right. to even try to start. To figure that out. How does that change? How do we get that changed? And why is that not required? Well, it has to it has to start on like state, local level, like with the cosmetology mm-hmm. state boards to really implement those kind of classes now with um, within the cosmetology program where they learn on both and not just one mannequin head. Right. They they only provide a Caucasian mannequin head. So how does how does a Caucasian learn on our hair. They don't. And but we learn on their hair. And how do we learn on our hair if we're using a Caucasian mannequin? Well, you know, we have our our family, you know, <laughs> our, our friends, Kiki, cousins and <laughs> all them down the street. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but they don't, you know, that's all they learn on. Does the diversity in salons change depending on where you are? Or is it still mostly segregated? It's still segregated. Wow. Trust me. Yeah, I've been so many places. In every country every that I've been to, I would always find a salon. Mm-hmm. I went to, um, well, I did go to a salon in Paris that was very interesting. It was, 
It was a white-owned salon, but they had a couple of African-American girls. There might mm-hmm. have been one African-American girl. But the rest was all Caucasian. Mm-hmm. And so all of her, mainly all of her clientele was the people that were living in Paris mm-hmm. and that, you know, the Africans or a lot of Africans live in Paris. So she was doing a lot of weave. Yeah. Um, not a lot of short hair, but weave was her thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still very, very segregated. Very segregated all across the board. You know, I noticed that also, too, you participate a lot as a panelist and sometimes on predominantly white events mm-hmm. like you'd be panelists. I, I, I see you uh, as a panelist in those. Do you feel like it's your responsibility to uh, as an African-American woman to educate them mm-hmm. in our hair, like in those spaces? What is that like for you as the only African-American woman? And Well, you know, I, I just... Um kind of hold my own and and keep explaining or teaching them, you know, educating them about us and our hair, um, what we require. Um, I feel like it it is, you know, I have to speak on, you know, textured hair, African-American, when when the mic mic comes to me. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, all about, you know, the classes that I provide and Mm -hmm. how you can get involved so that you can know, because it's really mainly a predominantly white audience. So, how how am I going to educate you guys? This is what's available because they don't really seek that. Mm-hmm. But um, if you if I'm on these big panels now that I'm getting attention, then maybe we can you know direct them that there is other options for them. And but I definitely have to keep rooting and like talking about you know what's in it for us. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and I love that you're the representative for. African-American women, black hair, the black salon, because of how you represent you. Mm-hmm. And so on those panels, when they see you, your presence elevates the idea of what they think about the black salon, exactly. black hair, you know, exactly. and how we, you know, it, it's different than what they think. Because, I mean, it, we all grow up in, you know, white America and we're all... Uh, knowledgeable of white hair Mm -hmm. because most of my childhood, I didn't really see black hair care commercials at all. Right. I know how you color your hair. I know how you perm your hair. Mm -hmm. I know how you condition your hair. Like Mm -hmm. we're, we, we we're made knowledgeable of those things when it comes to white people, but they, and, and you see more black hair care products on television today, but there's not the same, reach back to understand and to be knowledgeable. I feel sometimes offended that it's 2020 and anyone that's over 30 years old has to ask me about my hair or how, or how I do something to my hair. I have to uh, take a deep breath and decide in this moment, okay, do I want to educate? It's almost like Amanda Seals. Like how black am I going to have to get today? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, how how much information do I want to educate today? Because I don't, I don't, I don't think I need a white person to tell me anything about their hair. I think I just understand it and I get it. Right. And I feel like if you're young, maybe you don't know, but mm-hmm. at some point in your life, I think it's time out to ask a black person, well, how do you do that to your hair? How do right. you right. Uh, educate yourself? Educate, know something. And I'm glad, you know, that I'm able to be in those audiences on a predominantly Caucasian panel to represent and to speak on um, just giving them information and then they're not seeing us as that typical shop yes you know and being able to stand up there with them and talk this business with them I think it's uh important because they they definitely have a view of us and when they see something different then it's like oh it opens yeah it opens Yeah. yeah do you feel that black hair is culturally appropriated without being given acknowledgement for example and I don't dislike them, although I know a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. The Kardashians and the cornrows, and um, when they started wearing that, like, okay, we can take it all the way back to Bo Derek. Some of you young people listening will have no idea who Bo Derek oh, is, yeah. but Google yeah. her, yeah. and you'll see. Like, as if, you know, braids have been something that black people have worn back in Africa. Yes. You know, before we were ever brought to America, mm-hmm. hair braiding. Uh, as a matter of fact, most of the time, if we're going to get our hair braided, a lot of times we seek African braiders because right. of their skill right. in being able to braid. Mm-hmm. But I've seen times where 
white America will will take something that we do, mm-hmm. and almost as if you know it's a new they thing. Create, yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you notice that in in the hair industry? Do you see that and feel like we're culturally appropriated and not really given the credit that it came from our culture? Yeah, I I see that a lot um, within our industry, and that's where that bridge has to come. You know, mm-hmm. somehow, you know, something gets put on a celebrity, the Kardashians or right. whatever, and now it's like a trend. Well, right. We've been doing this for forever. But that's where, you know, the white style, that's where we can kind of bridge this. Like how, or even like with the models. Remember, Mm -hmm. um, there was somebody behind stage at a fashion week or something Mm -hmm. and they didn't know how to do her hair and it took them, you know, they were trying to do something with an African-American model. But and she mm-hmm. had like this big afro, but then the white people, the white stylists that were assigned, mm-hmm. they didn't know what to do with this hair. They were trying to, and you know, people were offended by it, how, what they were trying to do to her. And right. So I think those are moments of um, education. That's where we can bridge that education. I feel like they have, you know, they will take stuff from us, and yeah, we don't get credited for it. Right, and I don't um, think we mind. Like, I don't, I don't, it doesn't bother it me doesn't, if yeah. the Kardashians braid their hair, or right. any white person, right. but acknowledge that it came from, you know, us. Right. You know, yeah. and just give credit where credit is due, I think is, is the thing that offends uh, us the most, is to take it, like you said, and act like it's a new trend, when mm-hmm. we all know that it isn't. Yeah, right. And, and just piggybacking off what you just said about photo shoots, uh, television shows, movies, mm-hmm. many times white stylists are typically hired to do African-American hair who may not be skilled in African-American hair. Does that, does that signify that it's hard to break into Hollywood in that area? Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, I, hear, I see it and hear it all the time. I have a lot of um, celebrity uh, actresses or clients that come and they're always complaining about, um, you know, being backstage and getting their hair done, ready for a scene. Mm -hmm. And you have people that don't even know what to do with our hair. Mm -hmm. So that's been going on for a long time in Hollywood. How do we get more inclusivity in Hollywood? And you know, I honestly feel like, and this is just a conversation that I was having with a friend of mine. I feel like if you're if you're a white stylist and you have friends that are black stylist, African American stylist, however Bring you want to word it, when you get the gig, how about you say, okay, well, I see that you have three African American women. I have a friend who is amazing. She's you know, going to be my plus one to make sure that everyone on the set looks great. Bring your friends in. Yeah. Lift your people yeah. in. And because those are doors that, you know, it's hard for us to get through. Right. So we, we all need to, again, bridge together and like, okay, yep, let me help her out. This is really, you know, and then they should seek. I don't know who's on the on these unions and, you know, they should seek that out, I, you know, more because it's becoming more and more an issue as as we go on. But, um, yeah, I, I like the idea of, you know, bringing in, you know, having yeah. a conversation. Because once they meet you, they know you, they're comfortable with you, mm-hmm. they see your work, and now the next time they're on a show where there's African-American women, oh, I remember Nyjah. Let's mm-hmm. reach out to Nyjah. Yeah. Because sometimes they just you go with what they're familiar with. Exactly. I know a woman in Chicago who works for... Um, ABC, mm-hmm. and she's head over. She's head of like the beauty, makeup, and hair. Yeah. She's over that. Uh-huh. So, and now it's her particular company mm-hmm. that has been hired by CBS. Uh, so then she or ABC, and then she gets other people in under her. Okay, but you know they don't get paid because she gets most of the the payment. They mm-hmm. just kind of filter out. You know, here's the helpers which sometimes are mostly African-American because I've met some of her team. Mm-hmm. And they don't... Um, Make very much. No, they don't. They don't. Um, and I don't know what... It's just a really... I think it's just like that communication and you're just having to keep fighting to the top. And there's not a lot of us in positions of you know, ownership or mm-hmm. leadership. You know, We right. just kind of get the... The small jobs, I and mean, that means we have to continue to educate ourselves. We have to 
advance ourselves yeah. and our skill and not just settle into, you know, what's less because there's always more. And if you don't seek that, and that's what I'm saying about passionate people about the industry, right. you can go as far as you want. You just got to knock down a few doors along the way. You will have to. Absolutely. Yeah. You're listening to Nyjah Aziz. This is These Three Things, and we'll be right back. If you like what you've been hearing today, I encourage you to go to wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave a review and tell me what you loved about this episode. Hi, this is Sharana Reeves, and we are back with These Three Things and Nyjah Aziz. And now we're going to talk about personal Nyjah. <laughs> Get in your business a little bit, Nyjah. All right, all, all right. right. I, I feel that people who are stylists are typically creatives. Because you have to look at, you know, someone who comes in, and a lot of times you do the before and afters on your IG page, which I love. Because when I'm looking at those befores, there ain't no way in the world I'm <laughs> figuring that that's going to look like that after. Right. So you got to be a little bit of a visionary. You got to be yeah. uh, creative. Are you creative in other areas of your life? Mm -hmm. um, one of the areas, um, I love music. I, I play a little bit of piano. Um, that's one of my things I like to do. I, I got to get me a piano. Um, I love to cook and, um, I'm a very good cook and a mixologist as well. So okay. I like to. With the cocktails. Oh yeah. Oh, with the cocktails. Okay. Yes. So I'm like a big <laughs> person on like cooking and entertaining. Um, that's what I like to do. I like to. Yeah, I can totally see you as an entertainer. Yeah. You're I, probably a great host, aren't you? Yes, I like to entertain. I mean, if I could, some some people say, yeah, you can. You sound like you can sing a little bit, but I, if I could be like a singer on stage, I would totally be that person. And we all know who that would be. Yes, Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston. <laughs> Whitney Houston. That's exactly right. I tell you, I you posted... Ever so once in a while. But every time you post it, I just die laughing when you post that Whitney Houston as far as appointments and you say, I have nothing. <laughs> I have nothing. Nothing. <laughs> I have nothing for you. Right. I am booked. Solid, yes. You know. Yeah. So we all know. If you if you know Nyjah, you know she loves Whitney Houston and all things Whitney Houston. All things Whitney. And I've seen you sing a little Whitney every once in a while. Yeah, I'll break down. It may be a after a couple of beverages, but yeah, I just... And that's how I feel getting out of your chair. You mm -hmm. remember my famous saying, like, oh, you God. cut my hair that day, and I was like, <laughs> sitting in your chair looking at my hair, and I'm like, who in here don't think my hair is cute? Like, if you don't, you a hater, because who my hair... Who in here? I know, love it. And, and it feels like you're about to step on a stage when you get out of your chair. Like, you're the stylist that, when someone gets up from your chair, there's not a hair they need to touch, there's not... Anything that they need to reposition, it, it is perfection. So mm -hmm. you create like you are on a stage. Yeah. And it's like camera ready. When we get out of that chair, we're camera ready for whatever. That's exactly. So when I started, I used to always say this thing to myself. It was like, okay, so when they leave this chair, just know that the paparazzi, they're outside. <laughs> and they're going to be like, excuse me, who did your hair? Yes. And they're going to be like, Nigel. Yeah. <laughs> so so that's, that inspires me to really perfect it like you're really on stage yeah. so like entertainers like Whitney um who I miss her dearly and uh um and to be great and articulate like I love like Katie Couric mm -hmm. this is odd and not in my artistry but yes I always secretly kind of wanted to be a journalist yeah um so I like to I love Tom Brokaw. I love delivering the news. I love being educated. I can and totally being, see that. You know, mm -hmm. I love all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Mm -hmm. And it shows that. And I guess it, it led me to, does Nigel have a bad day? I do have some bad days. Not, not a lot, though. Um, I have a lot of patience. I know that about me. Even though I'm older now. I still have a lot of patience. I don't have children, but I have a lot of patience. Mm -hmm. um, what is a bad day like for you? What what makes it a bad day for you? When adults aren't doing what they're supposed to do. Mm. When I don't want to be, I don't want to tell you, because I don't have children, so I don't want to come to you as an adult and say, hey, you didn't do this, or hey, what's, what's going on with this? Right. I don't want to question you know, things that are laid out to adults. Those are, those are difficult days um, when I have to do that. So in the process of creating all this success, 
How much of your personal life, Nigel, have you sacrificed? Oh, a lot. Talk about it. Um, well, I was engaged for six years to one guy. <laughs> and, you know, my life with him was just, he kind of started with me when I opened the salon. Mm-hmm. So he saw like the long days, the 12 and 18 hour days in the salon. And then I'd go home with him or we try to go out to dinner and I'm asleep. It's like, I've, there's no right. room for anything else. I'm tired. Don't ask for anything. I'm, leave me alone. Yes. <laughs> I'm asleep. You know, it was just very hard to maintain, you know, a strong relationship. And then I started traveling. Mm-hmm. So we broke up and then, you know, just trying to meet people. Um, it's very difficult when you're, when you're running things and you're, you're your own boss and you're, responsible for your life. Um, Melody told me that no one's coming to rescue you. You have to take care of yourself and make sure that you secure your finances. And, um, but meeting people was, it's kind of difficult, but you know, I kind of have a little friend right now that, you know, that you like, I do like him, but he likes me more than I like him, which is good. And I always say, I have this one, one line that I like to say, um, leap and the net will appear. Mm. So yeah. I've I've done a lot of leaping in my life and I never once hit rock bottom, thank God. Because yeah. you know, when you know what you know and feel what you feel, you're gonna be protected. Yeah. You know? Just yeah. you gotta go with that and not let fear uh paralyze you. Yeah. I leaped I leaped from corporate, you know, after sixteen years and it's been an amazing ride. Yeah. Like for real. Yeah. So that leads me to this question. Uh-huh. <laughs> you laughed at this question. Are you as famous as you want to be? <laughs> I don't know what that question is. <laughs> um, people make you famous. Like, mm. I don't feel like I'm famous. Yeah. It's the people that watch you or see you. They are the ones that they continue to talk about you or you know, put you on their shows and all that, they make you famous. Yeah. I just do what I do. And that's a wrap with Nija Aziz. And we'll be right back with these three things. Hey, Queens. This is Sharana Reeves. I'm with Nija Aziz. And we are back with these three things. Number one. Be professional. When I asked Nyjah what was the number one skill a new stylist needed to learn, her response was professionalism. You can have all the talent in the world, but presenting an unprofessional environment will only take you so far. We all want to do business with people who are talented, but we also want professionalism. Showing up on time, being consistent with your work, And creating an environment that makes everyone feel comfortable will create major growth opportunities for you. Only you know how big your dreams are. Don't let unprofessional practices hinder you from shining bright like the star that you are. Number two, it's never too late. My guest, Nyjah, walked away from a 16-year career to follow what she felt was her calling. Many times we have dreams inside of us we don't pursue because we think we're too old, fear of failure, or we're worried about what other people might say. Regardless of your age, that calling you feel inside has been there all this time for a reason. As long as you have breath in your body, it's never too late. That business idea that you have, That company you wanted to start, that restaurant you always dreamed of, is waiting on you. Who will work harder to see it succeed than you? Many of us have worked hard most of our lives to help other people be successful. Maybe it's time to bet on you. Number three. Write the vision. It doesn't matter what kind of church you grew up in. If you've been to church, 
you've heard the scripture, write the vision and make it plain. Growing up, Naja would write in her journal all the things she wanted to accomplish as a stylist. Today, she looks back at those journal entries and can see how she's accomplished all that she'd written. There's power in putting your desires into the universe. Even the world was void until the spoken word of God. This week, take a moment and write down the visions and dreams you have for your life and then get to work. Every once in a while, look back at your journal to check off your list all the goals you've accomplished with your words. Okay, queens, that does it for this episode. So if this is your first time tuning in, I'd love for you to subscribe and hear all the other interesting topics we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks.